Our text this afternoon is John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, where it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Will you pray with me? Father, Help us. Help us this day truly magnify you. Help us this day to truly, no matter how many times we've thought about Christmas, no matter how many Christmas sermons we've heard, let this day be a day where we worship Jesus anew. And make this a time, I pray, Lord, that will prepare us to worship you well this week. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. I was looking for a way to illustrate a concept, and the best story I've got is an old one from my life. Um, A lot of you may not know this about me, but during my, the summer of my freshman year of college, I had a job as a summer camp counselor. And I don't know how you feel about that, but it was an interesting task. And the camp that I served at served adults and children with all sorts of special needs. So we had like a 14-day-long session with blind and deaf children put together, which is also a unique experience for anybody who's never had that one. And we had week-long sessions for folks that were suffering from cerebral palsy or muscular dystrophy, But I have to tell you that one of the best sessions we had during that summer was a session that was for adults with developmental disabilities. Have any of you ever worked with developmentally challenged adults before? It can be a fascinating experience because these folks, they're grown folks, but many of them only had an elementary or lower aptitude level. They are some of the sweetest and most fun people that you will ever be around because they have sweethearts and really big emotions. And the best night, and there's no doubt about this, the best night of that camp session was the night that we had a dance. We set up a nice sound system in a room that was near the camp's cafeteria, And these sweet folks went to town. My job, which was the best job ever, was to work with the DJ. I helped with the equipment and the song selection. And what that really meant was I got to sit back and I got to listen to the music. And I got to have my friend Jody, who was a DJ that night. He described for me the scene. And it was fun. But during that evening, we had an encounter, Jody and I, Uh, with one of the campers. His name was Tom, and Tom was a special guy. He, He stood out among the group. Everybody knew his name. Every year he came back, everybody knew who he was. Tom was kind of big. 
He had a lot of bulldog about him. Tom was easily upset and maybe a touch on the dangerous side, though Tom would have never wanted to be dangerous. He was a sweet-hearted guy. But if Tom was upset, you could tell because everybody within a four-mile radius could hear Tom telling us of whatever the problem was. And I remember absolutely still, I mean, it's been a long time, y'all, since I was in college, and I still remember quite clearly Tom coming over to the table, slapping his hands down on the table, and making a request of Jody and myself. He said to us, and I quote, play rock and roll. (laughs) It was loud, and it was right there, man. Tom wanted us to play rock and roll. But the request itself wasn't what got our attention. It was the fact that while Tom was making that request, a blaring version of ZZ Top's sharp-dressed man was coming through the speakers. Y'all, you don't get a lot more rock than that in the setting we were in. So Jody and I kind of cringed. And you know what we did? We said to Tom, we will, don't worry. (laughs) We didn't bother trying to explain to Tom that rock and roll was the very thing that was playing at that very moment. Now, why would I tell you that story? I think there's something to learn here, and I think you can identify with it. And it helps us a little bit to think about when the world makes demands of God. Haven't you, have you ever had one of those moments where someone tries to tell you to do a thing, and you just did it? Or someone tells you to do a thing and you are currently doing it, but they make it out as if you haven't touched the task. Children, have you ever been told by your parents to clean your room and you just cleaned the thing? Come on, you know you have. Of course, some of y'all don't clean your room, but I'm telling you, you know what this feels like. But many people in our world call out to God. Oh, Lord, show yourself. Oh, Lord, just reveal yourself to the world. Oh, Lord, give us a glimpse of who you are. Just do something to show us that you care. Oh, God, won't you come and show us yourself? But don't you think that the Lord God who made the universe could say to us, I have shown myself to you. I came to earth and I lived among you. In his lovely book, Rejoicing in Christ, which I do recommend, Michael Reeves says this, quote, What is it like in eternity? What is there? For millennia, the human imagination has groped and guessed, peering into the darkness And in that darkness, it has dreamed of dreadful gods and goddesses, of devils and powers, or of space and ultimate nothingness. Staggered by immensity, we are left terrified of what might be. If there's a God behind it all, what's he like? Jesus. That is the Christian answer. He is like Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, says John 1.1, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Before all other things, before anything else existed, there was God and there was his Word who was God. And with that little sentence, a revolution has just happened. End quote. 
As we look at today's passage of Scripture, we're going to conclude our look at the introduction, the prologue to the Gospel according to John. And here we'll see very clearly how it is that God has already shown himself to humanity in the most complete way possible. He showed us himself when he gave us Jesus. We're going to find three points. If you're a note taker, there'll be three things to write down. Point number one, marvel at the incarnation of Jesus. Marvel at the incarnation of Jesus. John 1 verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've had 13 verses in John's gospel of telling us that the word was God and the word was coming into the world. Now we see how he came into the world here in verse 14. John tells us the word became flesh. Those five little words, and the word became flesh, communicate to us one of the most profound truths ever uttered. In John's gospel, we don't get the details of a virgin and a manger, an inn or any decrees from from emperors. Instead, for Christmas, what we get are five little words, and the word became flesh. And in them, we have just as much to wonder at. See, the fact that it's the Word who became flesh, that's profound. Remember, the Word is God, verse 1. He was not created. He created all things, verse 3. He contains life in himself, verse 4. He's the light of the world, verses 4 and then 9 and following. He is superior to John the Baptist. He's going to be rejected by many, but he will give those who receive him the right to become children of God, verse 13. That's what we learned about the word in the first 13 verses of this gospel. So for this action to be taken by the word is for the action to be undertaken by the God who eternally exists and who created every last one of us. And what God did is astounding. The word became flesh. God the Son became flesh. Jesus, who has existed for eternity as God in the Holy Trinity, Jesus took on a true human nature. Jesus neither became less than God nor more than human. He took upon himself a perfect, impossible to comprehend union of both deity and humanity in his form. He neither compromised his deity nor diminished his humanity. Jesus, God, became flesh. How amazing is that? How amazing is it that Jesus took upon himself human needs and restrictions? He had to eat, sleep, use the bathroom. By making himself human, he couldn't be in all places at once as he had been for eternity past, at least not in the same way. He wept. He smiled. He laughed. He felt hot or cold. He felt pain. Though he is truly God, he was perfectly man. Yes, I agree. (laughs) Consider how great a step down it is 
for Jesus, the God who created you, to himself become a man. In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7, Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now listen who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, in becoming flesh, what did Paul say? He emptied himself. Jesus never stopped being God the Son, never once. But Jesus allowed himself to become human and in that process he let go for a time of the glory that he had eternally experienced while in heaven the god of all the universe stepped down out of a position of eternal glory and eternal praise so that he could become a man veiling the glory that had been his for all of eternity up until that point that is an incredible sacrifice that is what happened at the birth of jesus and remember, lest you get a mistaken view of what happened here, Jesus, God the Son, is who became human. God the Father did not become human, but remained exactly as he has always been. God the Holy Spirit remained just as he has always been. Only the Son took on flesh. Only the Son became man. This did not change the divinity of Jesus. But for the first time, Jesus was both God and man, God with a body. And the Son, the Word of God, became flesh and the Bible says dwelt among us. The idea is that God truly was present among his people. The Greek word here translated dwelt will bring to mind two key pictures. First and foremost, it brings to mind a tent. Why would, why would it bring to mind a tent? Well, go in your brain to the Old Testament. When God led the nation of Israel out of Egypt under the, under the leadership of Moses, he commanded Moses to put together a tabernacle, a tent. And the tabernacle was designed pretty much to be a portable palace and a place where God would manifest himself among his people. The tabernacle was a constant reminder to the people of Israel during the Exodus that God was right there in their midst. They, they couldn't draw near to him, though. The tabernacle was designed to keep the people out, to keep them from coming too dangerously close to his holiness. But everybody in the camp knew God lived among them. Well, much like the tabernacle, Jesus dwelt among or tabernacled among the people of his day. Jesus is God living in the midst of his people, though many people didn't understand it or recognize it. Jesus lived in their midst just as God lived in the midst of the people in the Exodus. Jesus veiled his glory with his humanity in much the same way that the thick curtains of the tabernacle veiled the presence of God from the sight of the people. But Jesus isn't just like the tabernacle. Jesus, Jesus was approachable. You ever think about the differences there? Tabernacle has walls and courtyards and barriers to say, keep out. Jesus says, come to me. The Lord Jesus, in love and kindness, hugged children. And he celebrated weddings. He touched the sick. He wept with the weeping. Jesus is God with us, but so much better than what the people of God experienced in the Old Covenant. 
Now, one more picture that comes to mind with the word dwelt in verse 14. It's the idea of the bright, shining glory of God because the Greek word here has a very similar sound and spelling to the word Shekinah. When God was present with the Israelites in the Old Testament, one of the ways that they knew God was around was by the brilliant light that was visible, right? When Moses wanted to see God's glory, God passed by Moses in brilliant light that Moses couldn't even look on fully. When the tabernacle was dedicated, do you remember? God's presence came down and covered the tabernacle with smoke and light. God led the Israelites to the deserts, and at night, he was present, clearly seen by a pillar of fire in the sky, right? Again, when Solomon dedicated the temple, which was the permanent house to replace the tabernacle, God filled that place with the brilliance of his glory. Now Jesus has come, the very same glory But that glory is hidden or veiled behind Jesus' flesh. And that's why we sing in that beautiful Christmas song, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. John also says to us, We've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. We, the disciples, that's what John's saying here, they saw Jesus' glory. All the disciples saw the glory of God in the life and the miracles and the sweet character of Jesus. But even further, John specifically was one of the three men who went up the mountain and saw Jesus in his unveiled glory at the transfiguration. Because therefore, just a moment, the Lord Jesus shone with the brightness of the sun in the sight of Peter, John, and James. He revealed his glory just for a moment for them to see. And what John tells us here is that Jesus glorifies, or Jesus, God glorifies Jesus. That's why I'm trying to say this. God glorifies Jesus the way a father would glorify his only son. Now again, let 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 me help you here with the word son. And we'll talk more about it as the gospel goes on. But remember that God the Father did not make or create or in any other way bring Jesus about. God the Son has always eternally existed. Some people would say Jesus is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So why do you call him the Son of God? Because most of us, when we think of sons, we think of human relationships, someone coming into being who wasn't there before. That is not the idea here Instead, we're using the word son because Jesus is of the same essence or same substance as the father. Does that kind of make sense a little bit? Jesus is the same stuff that is God the father. They are the same things. So if God referred to Adam or if someone referred to Ezekiel as son of dust, is he saying that You didn't exist and then some dust did some work and made you? No, it's saying you're made out of dust. You're son of dust. The devil is the father of lies. Lies are are, are from the same essence, the same basic being as the devil himself. Jesus is the son of God in that he is of exactly the same essence, the same substance as the father. He And God the Father are both equally God. But he's revealed to us as son. Also, Jesus does play the son role in the the drama of redemption. 
But certainly, Jesus is not called the Son because he is less than or created by the Father. Jesus is of one substance, one essence with the Father, the perfect representation of God to mankind. And that's moderately heavy thinking. Now here... John tells us Jesus is glorified, held up to be admired and praised in the way that a father would glorify his only son. The final descriptor we get from John describing the word becoming flesh is that he was full of grace and truth. Those are two attributes, grace and truth, and they identify for you and me reasons you want to know Jesus. Jesus tells us in John 14, verse 6, he is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That means there's no falsehood in Jesus. While there is an entire generation of people out there who say, oh, I wish I could figure out the truth. Or there's other people out there that want to know what's real, they say. Or there's some other people out there that say, I don't even believe that truth exists. Doesn't matter. Jesus tells us, you know what? I am what is true. You want to know truth, you look to Jesus. And Jesus is full of grace. Grace is what? Grace is favor goodness that you haven't earned for God to look upon us favorably in any way is God giving us a gift that we never could have earned on our own that's grace and Jesus is full of grace all right you still with me I want you today to marvel at the incarnation of Jesus what I mean by that is you should wonder at you should be in awe of you should spend time thinking about the fact that jesus eternally god became flesh wayne grudem writes this quote the fact that the infinite omnipotent eternal son of god could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite god became one person with finite man will remain for all eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe end quote folks i want you to let these big heavy profound eternally significant truths wash over you and blow your mind That God the Son could become a man while God the Father and God the Holy Spirit remain spirit and unchanged. And let it make you love Jesus as you think about how much Jesus gave to come to earth. Let it lead you to willingly do what God calls you to do because you see that Jesus, God the Son, willingly took on a role of submission to his Father's authority even though they are perfectly equal. Let it make you long to see Jesus in the word of God because to see Jesus is to see the brilliant, shining, Shekinah glory of God. And make that verse lead you to love Jesus because Jesus is full of grace and truth. Let's not miss the glory of the incarnation as we think about celebrating the Savior's birth at Christmas. But John has more to say to us about Jesus than simply his incarnation. John's going to show us something of Jesus' greatness in point number two. Our second point, recognize Jesus' supremacy to all men. Recognize Jesus' supremacy, actually I should say, over all men. Recognize Jesus' supremacy over all men. 
Let's read verses 15 to 17. It says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. But the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So, get a little parenthetical here. Before John, the gospel writer, continues talking to us about Jesus being full of grace and truth, John, the gospel writer, is going to make a reference again to John the Baptist. And if you remember from last week, verses 6 to 8 of this chapter already showed us that John the Baptist, it introduced John the Baptist to us, and they pointed out the fact that John was a witness to Jesus, who is the light of the world. But John is not himself the light. Now John, the gospel writer, gives us words from John the Baptist to show us that John the Baptist is not superior in any way to Jesus. In John's words here, we see that John the Baptist fully acknowledges Jesus is supreme. Though Jesus comes after John the Baptist, Jesus is before John in time and in significance. What in the world does that mean? If you were to go back and The Bridges family did such a good job of giving us Luke chapter 1. If we look at that passage in its context, we know that there's a couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. And the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah and tells Zechariah, your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son. And Zechariah said, no way, she's too old. And the angel made it where Zechariah could no longer speak until the child was born and named But the promise of that child to come was the promise of the birth of John the Baptist, who would in fact be a great prophet of God. But then the same angel Gabriel spoke to a young virgin named Mary. I want to read it for us just one more time in Luke 1, starting in verse 26. It says, in the sixth month, pay attention to that number, okay? The sixth month. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man named, whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, listen again, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So, for you who are paying attention to the trivia, how much older is John the Baptist than Jesus? Six months. This isn't hard, is it? John the Baptist was born six months before the Lord Jesus. Now, in human thinking, especially for that culture, if Jesus is younger than John the Baptist, John the Baptist 
should have outranked him. John should have been thought of as greater and Jesus lesser because in cultures like the Middle Eastern culture of that day, cultures like many Asian cultures that you go to now, if you're older, you outrank the other person. I remember living in Korea. I was asked my age a lot. They wanted to know how old I was so they knew whether I got the extra respect or not. But John, the gospel writer, tells us Jesus is greater than John the Baptist Because, as we saw in verses 1 and 2, Jesus has eternally existed. Jesus didn't come into being when when his body was incarnate. Jesus always existed eternally as God the Son. So though John the Baptist might have been six months older than Jesus' earthly body, John the Baptist is infinitely younger than Jesus in terms of eternal existence. And since Jesus is God, he also is infinitely more important, infinitely more valuable, infinitely higher than John the Baptist. So John the Baptist was right. The one who comes after him was before him in rank because he is before him in value and he's before him in eternal existence. But in showing us that Jesus is superior to John the Baptist, folks, John the Gospel writer is showing us that Jesus is superior to every single prophet who ever came across the world's stage. John the Baptist was the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And for Jesus to be superior to John is for Jesus to be someone incredibly special indeed. And then John goes even further in expressing Jesus' superiority because in verse 16, we return to the concept of Jesus being full of grace and truth. And John tells us, Jesus, we've all received grace upon grace. Now, the literal rendering of that phrase, grace upon grace, is actually grace against grace or one grace in place of another grace. Jesus brings out a grace of God that had never before been possible. And John, the gospel writer, wants to tell us about it. He says the law was given through Moses. The old covenant was given by God to a nation of Israel through a man whose name was Moses, who was the same guy that led Israel up out of Egypt. Moses wrote for us the biblical books of Genesis through Deuteronomy. Jews call that the Torah. And in those books, in those books, Israel as a nation learned how they were to function as a nation, as the people of God, and they learned the laws of God. But here's the thing. Did Moses make the law up on his own? No. How did Moses get the law? It was given to Moses by God. And, God, and then Moses would take that and give it to the people. So Moses, in the minds of many of the Jews, was the greatest man in all of history up until that point. And without question, Moses was indeed a great man of God. But then John goes on to say, the law came through Moses, but what's it say next? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, I want to tell you one more interesting Greek tidbit. You guys get tired of doing Greeky stuff? Okay, I appreciate that. Moses gave the law, and the word there for the way Moses gave the law indicates that Moses passed along a thing that he had been given. But grace and truth, the word for the grace and truth came through Jesus. The word for came 
is the Greek word that means that something came into being. It's the same word used in verse 3, saying that through Jesus, all things were created or came into being. See, Moses passed along a law, a wonderful thing that he received from God. But Jesus did something altogether superior to Moses because Jesus did not pass along grace and truth that he had received. Grace and truth came into being through Jesus. Do you see the difference in the significance there? It's huge. I want to read to you how another biblical author addresses this issue a little bit. Hebrews 3, verse 3, the writer of the Hebrews says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Jesus is as much superior to Moses as an architect is to the house. Now, have you all ever gone and seen somebody's house and thought that's a nice house? A couple of you have. When you go, do you say, this house is great. It is amazing how it put itself together. Is that what you do? Work with me here. Thank you. Just checking. Because some of you might, and then we'd have to have another conversation. If you see a beautiful house or a beautiful painting or a beautiful sculpture, or a beautiful plate full of Christmas candies. You should think to yourself that an artist, or a craftsman, or a designer, somebody did a really good job of work. And if you are a wise person, a thoughtful person, you will applaud the artist, not simply the art itself. Here, we see that Jesus, who is the source of grace and truth, is far superior to Moses, the man who communicated that grace and truth in the law of God. So in this section, let the word of God call you to recognize that Jesus is supreme, superior to all mankind. There is no man who can equal Jesus. John the Baptist and all the prophets of the Bible could not equal Jesus. Not even Moses, who was the one who carried the Ten Commandments down from Mount Sinai. Moses is not superior to Jesus because Jesus is the one who made the Ten Commandments. So recognize Jesus is superior and that will call you to bow down to Jesus as he, Jesus, the Son of God deserves your worship. And now we're going to close out the introduction to John's gospel. The last verse, point number three, verse 18. Look at Jesus to see God. Look at Jesus to see God. Look at verse 18. It says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So John here, he points us to the glory of Christ and he tells us one more thing that you need to know before you get into the, the, the step-by-step accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. John, the gospel writer, reminds us there's nobody who's ever really been able to see God, not fully. Why is that true? Well, God is spirit and God is holy. And remember that the glory of God has often been expressed in a brilliant light. And for a sinful human being to see God's perfect holiness, it would be deadly to the human. Listen to Exodus 33, 18 to 20. It says, Moses said, Moses talking to God, please show me your glory. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me 
and live. Y'all, no matter how close Moses was in his relationship to God, even seeing the fading flash of God's glory, Moses never truly saw all there is to see of God because no sinful being could ever survive that kind of sight. But Jesus, who has existed eternally in Trinitarian fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, Jesus has seen God. Jesus is God, the Son. Jesus has beheld the divine glory since before the dawn of time. And, thanks be to God, Jesus has made God known. The only human being ever to live who has truly seen all the glory of God that there is to see, Jesus made God known to humanity. Jesus took the truth of who God is and what God is like, and he made that truth available for you and me to see by living it before us. John 14, verses 8 and 9. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, Philip? And you still do not know me, Philip. Jesus said to him, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Listen, do you want to know God? Then you have to get to know Jesus. Do you want to see God? Then you want to see Jesus. See, guys, this is why I am so cranked about going back into a gospel because it gives us such a beautiful picture of Jesus. I love the other books. I love the prophets. I love the epistles. But there's something special about watching Jesus walk around in the Bible. You want to know God? Know Jesus. The epistles are just as beautiful. They're just as authoritative. But I want us to spend some time with Jesus. If you want any part of your life to have anything to do with God, you must connect with God through the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. He is superior to all men who have ever lived or ever will live. He exposes to us everything that God is. He displays for us the glory of God, and he accomplished every bit of that. How? By doing the unthinkable, by becoming a man, by being born in Bethlehem, by growing up and walking the earth to display for us the glory of God. Today, I want you to know some wonderful things about God. Jesus is God. Jesus became flesh to show us God, to communicate God to us, and to purchase our forgiveness with his own blood. And Jesus did all of this both to glorify God and to offer you the chance to be in relationship with the God who made you. And if you want to be in relationship with God, and if you want to be forgiven of the wrong that you've done in your life, you must come to know God by coming to know Jesus. You must seek the grace of God by asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins. You must yield your life to the will of God by yielding your will to that of Jesus. Today, you can be a child of God if you begin a relationship with God the Son, Jesus Christ. And I also want to call Christians to one thing. Christians, this whole sermon ought to call you to worship. 
If this doesn't get you ready for Christmas, I don't have any idea how to do it. Realize Jesus is the Lord. He is God who became flesh. Realize that Jesus is supreme, superior to all. Realize that Jesus reveals God to us and let it call you to true worship of the Savior this Christmas. Come to know Jesus as God and give him the praise, the worship, and the glory he so richly deserves. Let's pray together, friends. Lord God, as we bow, we ask you, would you absolutely blow our minds with a deep, heartfelt desire to worship the Lord Jesus? Lord, would you teach us the truth of Jesus so much that we are more eager than at any other Christmas in our lives to say thank you that the light of the world came into the world. Lord, would you, um, would you help us not, not to let ourselves be distracted, not to let ourselves be sort of ho-hum thinking that we've heard this all before. Help us not to be put off because the world doesn't understand Christmas. Help us to love you. Help us to marvel and be thankful for Jesus. God, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, I pray that you would have mercy on them so that they might come to know you. Lord, enliven our hearts. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.